Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo. Los Angeles Police Chief William Bratton, recently confirmed to a second term, speaks candidly with Jim Newton, editor of the L.A. Times editorial page. In this discussion, recorded shortly before Bratton's confirmation, Chief Bratton openly addresses his department's controversial use of force in MacArthur Park this past May Day. He surveys the economics of policing, the unique challenges of patrolling 450 square miles of city, the differences between New York and Los Angeles policing styles, and discusses his crime-fighting priorities. Speaking before a live audience at Barnstall Art Park as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Jim Newton introducing Chief Bratton. Thank you. Thank you for coming tonight. It's possible to think about the uh, 20th century history uh, of this city as principally uh, that of uh, the interaction of three institutions, uh, the Department of Water and Power, the Los Angeles Times, and the LAPD. To cite just uh, one formative uh, example, uh, the DWP is the one that figured out how to bring the water from the Owens Valley. It's the LA Times, as you all know, that sold the idea to the public. And then when uh, Owens Valley residents decided to retaliate by dynamiting the canal, it was the LAPD that sent officers uh, to restore order. As the century uh, progressed, these institutions were sometimes allied and sometimes we've frankly not been. Ed Davis, who, as uh, many of you will know, served as the chief of the LAPD from 1969 to 1978, once described to me uh, the process of uh, securing the LAPD's annual budget back in the days when he was a deputy chief. First, he said the department would work to come up with a proposed spending plan for the coming year, and then Davis, who was then the department's uh, liaison to the government, would uh, walk it across the street and show it to the publisher and editorial page editor of the Times. Uh, If they approved, they would then call over to the mayor's office, and uh, Davis would take it uh, from there. Regrettably, uh, times change. And yet, uh, Davis uh, also understood that the L.A. Times and the LAPD would not uh, always be allied. During his time as chief, uh, Davis uh, famously uh, canceled his subscription to the Times, which he referred to as Pravda. And he said he would uh, resume reading it uh, when the Times resumed publishing a newspaper, which I guess is proof that while times change, not all things do. So it is with special pleasure that I thank Chief Bratton for joining us here tonight to talk about the city uh, and the LAPD and about the special responsibility uh, for this place that our two institutions hold. Chief Bratton, uh, as most of you know, came to Los Angeles five years ago at the behest of then-Mayor James Hahn. He brought with him a highly distinguished career uh, in Boston and in New York. And during his tenure here, crime has fallen dramatically and continues to drop. Just the other day we were talking and Chief Bratton's BlackBerry went off with the latest report of its decline. Uh, The LAPD also has become a far more diverse police force than in the days that I covered it in the mid-1990s. And to those of us who have watched it for a long time, it exudes a sense of uh, professionalism that has not always been there. At the same time, and uh, Chief uh, Bratton will talk about these uh, in a moment, I'm sure there also have been difficulties, uh, most recently with the events on May 1st at MacArthur Park. The chief has clashed occasionally with members of the city council and others. And so tonight, we'd like to begin by having Chief Bratton take a few minutes to describe the LAPD today and where it's headed in the event that he receives a second term, as is expected in the next few weeks. Uh, Once the chief has spent a few minutes telling us about his sense of the LAPD uh, under his watch, uh, I'll ask him a few questions, uh, and then 
uh, hope to turn it over to all of you. So with that, uh, Chief Bratton, if you'll uh, begin by telling us where we stand. Thank you, Jim. Well, it's a real pleasure to be with you all this evening. The police department that I'm privileged to lead and have led for the last four and a half years and fully anticipate that in the next several weeks the police commission will offer me a second term is one that is going through, like American policing, a uh, very significant change, a continuing evolution. And during my 37 years in policing, policing's gone through three revolutions. The early 1970s, we went through the professional model of policing, and the Los Angeles Police Department emulated that model. One Adam 12, those two good-looking young cops. Joe Friday, not quite as good-looking, but uh, maybe more entertaining. The uh, very vision of professional policing was the LAPD. But in the 1980s, the LAPD and American policing fell on hard times. That, that style of policing just was not able to keep up with the phenomenal societal changes, the drug culture, the cultural violence, the ready availability of guns, and many young people coming out of the broken homes that had begun to disintegrate in the 60s and the 70s. And increasingly, we were a country that was in free fall, particularly as it related to crime. And in 1990, this city, along with New York and Boston and America, had the worst crime year in modern times. Fortunately, there was a new form of policing that was evolving, and I was privileged to be one of the leaders of that new evolution. That was community policing. Community policing's emphasis was on the prevention of crime, not the response. The professional model was all about, you call 9-11, we'll get there as fast as we can, deal with your problem, and then leave. The problem was the problems kept reoccurring. Community policing was a different focus. It was the idea of partnership, something this police department did not know anything about. The reputation of the LAPD was a department that stood alone. We had all the answers. Uh, we didn't need to go anyplace else to get any, and we were very reluctant to share the ones that we had. And the culture that everybody so frequently talks about trying to change in this department, I can sum it up in one word, and it's isolation. It's a department that isolated itself from the community, isolated itself from the city it served, and isolated itself from the profession it was a part of. And within the department, it isolated itself into these little pockets of specialized units that didn't do a very good job of interacting with each other. So in the 1990s, the city wrestled with how to change the police department to basically fit into this new model of policing that it was just really not suited for and particularly coming on the heels of the riots of the early 1990s and the Christopher Commission, it was an organization in great turmoil. And as it moved into the 21st century, it was still struggling. It was struggling with new scandals, the Rampart scandal. It was struggling with what had been a crime rate that had begun to go down in the mid-90s and reached a very significant low point around 1999. But then internal turmoil once again began to take over, and so by the year 2002, the decision was made that the police chief that was in place at that time would not be offered a second term. Crime had got, now gone up for three straight years, and both the department's sense of confidence in itself and the public confidence was just not there. I was fortunate that I was working as part of the federal consent decree monitoring team, had some understanding of the organization, missed being in the public sector, missed making decisions, missed my profession, policing, and applied. First time in my life I ever applied for a job that I had always been asked to take over as a chief of police. So kind of a humbling experience to actually apply for and have to compete for a job. And uh, when I began that competition, I was the uh, dark horse. Nobody wanted me. 
Rick Caruso clearly did not want me. L.A. Times was uh, uh, not particularly uh, leaning in my direction and uh, had the satisfaction, however, of actually getting the job. And over the last four and a half years, I've had the pleasure of having the job. And the focus is on three issues during my time and will continue into my second term. Reducing crime and fear. And overall, crime is down over 30% over the last four and a half years. It's down again this year. And unlike the rest of America, where it's been going up for the last several years, it will continue to go down in this city. Homicides are down by almost 50% over the last uh, five years. And despite all the attention to the gang crime issue, the reality is gang crime is down dramatically over the last five years. Gang homicides are down by 56%. And the reality in the city, compared to where we were in 1990, the uh, the level of crime in this city is almost 60% less than it was in 1990. So we are, and the mayor talks about the second safest large city in America. In reality, we are that based on the uh, basically per capita crime rates. So the crime situation, we're doing better. The second issue is preparing the city against terrorism. And we have built next to New York City the most robust counterterrorism operation in America. We are widely applauded by the Secretary of Homeland Security as a place to go to see how we make it all work. And then the third area is implementation of the consent decree. I embrace the consent decree rather than as my predecessors fought it. The reason I embrace it, one, it will give us best practices, two, it will give us some of the best computer systems in America, and three, it will give us the federal imprimatur of it being a police department that is not racist, not brutal, and not corrupt. We are none of those things. We do have some officers, unfortunately, like every other police department in America who may be, but with the assistance of the consent decree, we are aggressively able to root them out and get them out of the department. So we are a police department that is focusing on those three priorities and will continue to focus on them in my second term. And I fully anticipate as we go forward, we'll continue to get crime down. The department's growing. A uh, thousand additional officers have been promised. We need 3,000, but I'll take the thousand. And when we show what we can do with them, then I'm sure you'll be willing to vote uh, more money to pay for the other 2,000. Because policing is an investment. We make the city safe. You make the city safe. Jobs are created. People are employed. Taxes are paid. Taxes paid. We can do more good things, not just for the police, but for your streets, your sidewalks, your schools, your libraries. So in some substance, that's what we're doing. And it's uh, not without its issues, MacArthur Park being the most recent in a long series of issues for the department. But we need to basically focus on when we have those crises that it's how we address them. We don't run away from them. We don't circle the wagons. We face up to them, try to learn from them, and try to move forward. So that's what we've attempted to do with MacArthur Park as well as other issues over the last four and a half years. And so that's the state of the department. Thank you, Chief. Let's start with MacArthur Park. Uh, you mentioned it. I mentioned it. Um, it's, I think it's fair to say it signaled to many that there were some troubling uh, residuals uh, in the police department, that there was uh, an over-reliance on force, uh, potentially an indifference uh, to minority communities. There were uh, scenes of brutality that we haven't seen in a long time. Since then, you and others have identified that there were breakdowns in uh, communication and questions about training. What, if anything, have you already learned from MacArthur Park, and, and what is there left to, to learn, and, and what has it told you about the department? Most of the story is already out. There are no smoking guns. There are not going to be any surprises that uh, it was first and foremost a leadership failure, that uh, one of the most uh, uh, significant leadership failures I've seen in 37 years in the business. Uh, my senior people on the scene did an awful job an awful job planning and an awful job adapting to a rapidly changing circumstance. 
they should have been able to handle the 25, 50, 75 agitators who were the source of most of the problems in the late afternoon at that event. And uh, the department did not respond in the ways that we have responded so well over hundreds of demonstrations over the years. So first and foremost, it was a phenomenal leadership failure, which was corrected within 72 hours that I removed the two top commanders who I felt had performed uh, in a deficient manner. Uh, one is retired and the other is uh, not going to be uh, out in the field leading officers again. Additionally, there were issues of concern relative to Metro officers, the orders they were given, whether or not appropriate orders to disperse were given, and the use of force that they were authorized to use and as to whether some officers used more force than was authorized. The issue of leadership was that at a certain point, the decision was made to move into the portion of the park where there were three to 4,000 demonstrators, peacefully demonstrating, they had a permit, and to move 150 police officers with less lethal weapons and batons into that park should not have happened, but it did happen. And uh, we all seen the visual images of the results of that action. And we are dealing with it. There are a number of investigations and reports that have been launched and we will have a full public accounting, uh, hopefully within the next several months, that will uh, try to explain the significant things that went wrong and the things that we're correcting, things that have already been corrected, the leadership for one, training that we're going moving forward with. Also being in a position to make it quite clear that this was not an assault on the immigrant community. It was not an effort to derail the national immigrant movement. It was a leadership failure. It was a failure on the part of some officers who used force that was inappropriate for the circumstances they were facing. And at the same time, uh, not to diminish the extent of the uh, black eye it gave for the department, the extent of the uh, concern and frustration I feel about it, and ultimately I'll accept full responsibility for it. It was the, the commander that was in charge was a person that had been selected by me for that position. And... Uh, he and some of his people failed that evening. I ultimately will accept the responsibility in the sense of some of the decisions I've made that have led up to that event. We are a very small department and we have to do a lot. We have to deliver police service, we have to train, we have to do a lot of things. And one of the results of having a small department is you can't do everything all the time, everywhere. And so we have to make decisions, how much training versus how many people are actually out in black and whites. And there's a balancing act that goes on all the time, and that's decisions I have to make. And I'm comfortable making and I'm comfortable explaining them, but it is also frustrating sometimes because with the lack of resources, it fuels so many other issues. You're listening to Los Angeles Police Chief Bill Bratton in conversation with Jim Newton, editor of the LA Times editorial page. This is Zocalo. Tune in and click on Zocalo Radio in the coming weeks as we bring you the affable performance artist Billy Kermano, cast members from the Broadway hit at the Amundsen Jersey Boys, and a comedy trio with a name that's sure to offend. Hang out with your radio, grab the podcast, or listen to audio anytime at our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We now return to Bill Bratton in conversation with Jim Newton. Uh, you mentioned in your opening remarks the consent decree. 
can you give us a sense of there are those who see the consent decree as a useful agent for reform and for monitoring of the department, others who see it as a really cumbersome device to force extra reporting out of the department that costs money, that takes personnel off the street. What are the pros and cons uh, of the consent decree, and how long, in your view, should it remain in force? It is all of those things. <laughs> it is uh, costly. It is time-consuming. It is overly bureaucratic. In an organization that uh, is the epitome of bureaucracy, we have put another layer of bureaucracy on top of it that it's hard to find the P. We have so many layers of uh, blankets of bureaucracy on top of the LAPD. Ultimately, it will prove to be a good thing because it will require the department to uh, engage in best practices. We will have the best computer systems for tracking our personnel. We will have very good oversight but it is also an overly complex document. It was uh, inappropriately designed at the beginning in the sense that it was, in some respects, an elephant gun uh, was used when a uh, revolver might have been more appropriate. It had layers upon layers of bureaucracy that have consumed phenomenal amounts of personnel time, money, and because of the complexity of a computer system, uh, we probably could have went to Radio Shack and got a Tandy computer and put the system in place four years ago instead of designing this incredibly complex set of computer systems that have resulted in an extension of three years because it took us so long to, to design the damn thing. And now that we have it, and in fact, as of today, it's up fully functioning, running. It's doing very, very well. But we're going to have to modify it because we didn't design it to be user-friendly. We had a bunch of techies sitting in a room who didn't talk to the people who are actually going to have to use it. And as a result, we designed uh, the story of the three blind men that were asked to design a horse, and we end up with a camel. Well, that's in some respects what happened with the LAPD and its computer system. Good news is, however, it is now up and running. It is doing what it is expected to do, and it is capable of being refined. I've got great people working on it. It is finally coming together. So it's been a frustrating experience. It has become the public whipping boy for everything wrong about the LAPD. It's got to be the consent decree. It uh, does create a lot of uh, bureaucracy, a lot of frustration, but in the long run, it will probably have been worth it that uh, the next generation will know nothing else but the systems that are in place now, and it won't be the, uh, the burden that it's been on the current generation of officers. Do you personally use the officer tracking system at all? Do you use it to identify officers or look for patterns or uh, do research on officers who uh, do may I come to your attention? Do yeah, do you ever pull the material? No, I'm, I, I basically use my computer for email. So <laughs> I, I would, seriously, I, I wouldn't know how to access it, that I have staff to do that, that uh, I have no need to go in and access it, that, uh, but I have many people who do. The system is actually, the computer system is made up of a series of programs, and the intention of it is ultimately to identify or red flag officers whose patterns of behavior are giving off signals that there may be a problem there. The idea being that uh, an officer has higher than normal number of complaints, a higher number of uses of force, or a higher than usual number of sick days. A whole series of identifiers that when they come together, if they're above the norm for that officer's assignment, it sends up a red flag and we send an action item report. The computer will literally actually send an action item report to the commanding officer and the commanding officer will have to act on it. The computer literally forces him to start taking a look at this officer, see what's going on and respond and indicate, I've looked at this officer and yes, there is a problem or no, there isn't a problem. 
it's really quite the system. There's nothing quite like it in America. Once it is up fully running and functional, it will provide a lot of very useful insight. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you to back up for a minute. Uh, you are the, the only person, obviously, ever to command both the LAPD and the NYPD. Is there are there striking differences uh, between the two departments, um, either in serving in your job or, or in the way they mm -hmm. go about their, uh, their work in their cities? Uh, the good news is that they are totally different. Uh, good news for me, because I would not want to do the same thing all over again. I had a great time in New York, but I wouldn't want to do New York all over again in Los Angeles. Let me explain the difference between the two departments and the two cities and why the style of policing here is very different than the style of policing there. New York City is a city of 8 million people, concentrated uh, in a 300-square-mile area. It is a very vertical city in many respects, uh, tall buildings, tall residential buildings. And its crime problem is, or in the 90s when it had a crime problem, it really doesn't have a crime problem today, was largely the result of neighborhood drug dealers who controlled a couple of blocks and a couple of corners. When I was police commissioner in New York City, there were 15,000 locations dealing drugs, 8,000 indoors, 7,000 outdoors. And uh, by and large, the outdoor ones are gone, the indoor ones are going to reduce significantly. But what New York also had that we don't have here was a huge police force. I had, during my time, 35,000, 36,000 police officers. After I left, they went up to 41,000. Here in Los Angeles, 480 square miles, we are literally a flat city. You know, we have downtown, but once you get out of downtown, we have two, three-story tall buildings. So we have a very different look and feel of New York. Secondly, we have four million people, so a much smaller population spread out over a much larger area. But we have a very different crime problem. We have gangs. New York's crime problem is nothing at all like the gang influence crime problem here. And gang crime is uh, more than 50 to 60 percent of the violent crime and maybe higher. But that's based on our documented gang crime. But if you take it into account all of it, it's probably a much higher number. And we only have, as of today, we have 9,456 police officers to deal with that huge city. At any given time in the city, I might have about 500 officers uh, working the streets. In uh, New York City, with 34,000 at any given time, I'd have uh, four or 5,000. So we are very thinly policed. Uh, my wife and I, when we first came out here, coming out of the New York environment, it was we would see a black and white so seldom as we went all over the city. She uh, used to refer to them as sightings, that uh, we, we, we sighted a black and white, that, oh, look, Bill, there goes one. And uh, it's like bird watchers in Central Park looking for the spotted owl. But what we make up for in lack of numbers is the quality of officers. Because the officers have really had to become so self-reliant because they're backup some nights in an area that's 40 square miles, I might only have three police cars. So your backup might be 20 miles away when you're looking for them. So the officers here are incredibly self-reliant, incredibly well-trained. One of the reasons we have so few officers injured in the line of duty, one of the reasons we have so few members of the public injured by our police officers, 168,000 arrests last year. We had fewer than 2,000 reported uses of force. And out of that, we had relatively very few serious injuries to individuals who are resisting arrest, who are shooting at us, and we're shooting back, that uh, an incredibly well-trained group of officers. So the difference between both cities is very significant. But what I do as a police chief, I'm like a doctor. A doctor looks at many different patients. 
He has different prescriptions to deal with the different illnesses. The illnesses that affect LA are by and large very different than the illnesses that affect the city of New York. A different crime problem, a different amount of medicine to put against the problem. With 9,000 cops, I have less medicine on the shelf to deal with. So what we were able to do in New York, I could do everything everywhere all at the same time. And that's why crime plummeted. And now New York crime is down about 75 to 80% from what it was in the 90s. Here it's down about 50% because here I can only deal with, like a doctor in a trauma center, I can deal with the life-threatening issues, but a lot of the other illnesses or injuries I can't get to because they have so little medicine or so few resources. You just mentioned in passing there that uh, with a force of between nine and 10,000 uh, officers here, you've only got 500 or so on the street. At one time, you want to take a moment and explain why so few are on the street? Given Actually, I can tell you exactly how many. Exactly. <laughs> Let me just look it up for you. That's a setup. <laughs> no, seriously, that one of the things, the BlackBerry, I get criticized oftentimes about all my travel. <laughs> but uh, literally, unlike my predecessors in this one device, I get every shooting call when it occurs. I get every major incident, every bomb call out. Six times a day, I get updates on how many police officers, how many sergeants do I have, how many police officers, how many police cars in every area of the city. So that effectively, what we now have is timely, accurate information upon which to make decisions. So let me just do a quick uh, look-see at my log on here. This was at uh, 12.55, logged on at noontime today. I should be getting another one uh, in a few minutes. I had 48 sergeants, I had 500 police officers, I had 35 available units, there were 16 calls pending in the city. In my central bureau uh, that has six police areas, I had 15 sergeants, 167 officers, I had 30 ACARs, ACARs are the two officer cars that you see, handling and 911 calls. So I can literally go through every area of my city and basically tell you at 12 o'clock how many police we had. But at 12 o'clock, we had about 550 uniformed police officers handling your calls throughout the city. I had detectives and other people in the buildings, but out on the street at that particular time. Keep in mind, this is a city of 480 square miles, so effectively that's one police officer for every square mile. So that's why you don't see them, because there are so few of them, because I have two of them in a car, so that basically means I've got two officers for every two square miles. So in New York City, uh, the average police precinct has 300 officers for about a three-square-mile area. I have about 300 officers out here for about a 30-square-mile area. So that's why you just don't see your police. There's just not that many of them. Has that changed much uh, in the five years you've been here? You may recall when I first came in, I was appointed in October of 2002. In May of 2003, I was embroiled in a bit of controversy, myself and Mayor Hahn, with the city council when we had the audacity to propose hiring 300 more police officers. At that time, I had, I think, 9,200. And we got into a major fight with the uh, city council, hired 300 police officers, and we lost. So in 2002, the decision was made. We didn't have money to hire those police officers. So effectively, that's today, what I indicate, we had 9,456. So... I effectively have four and a half years later, I have about 200 more police officers than I had four and a half years ago. So we haven't grown by much. Hmm. There are some prospects for growth over the next several years. Prospects for growth, but I'd point out that even with that small number of small growth, that uh, homicides are down by about 40, 50%. Overall crimes down about 30%. Response time in the city for emergency calls is an incredible six and a half to seven minutes. 
that's incredible when I talk about police offices that might be 10 or 15 miles away from the call they're responding to. That's where the helicopter fleet is so essential. Those helicopters that annoy you at night flying around, you could not police this city without the helicopters. The helicopters are effectively black and whites in the sky. So when I have an incident up in the hills, that helicopter can get up there. Well, it might take my car 15 or 20 minutes to find the house up in those hills. But the helicopter can literally be sitting on top of that burglary location in a matter of about three or four minutes. So as annoying as they might be, you could not police this city without the helicopter fleet. You're listening to Los Angeles Police Chief Bill Bratton in conversation with Jim Newton, editor of the LA Times editorial page. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new LA. Summer is here, and Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series is sizzling. Tomorrow's event, an evening with Jonathan Gold, is sold out. On August 28th, Zocalo and the Music Center present the writer and MacArthur Genius Award recipient Alma Guillermo Prieto with How to Be a Mexican, a musical instructional manual at the Walt Disney Concert Hall. Zocalo events are always free and reservations are always recommended. To reserve your seats and download podcasts, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. In a moment, we return to Bill Bratton in conversation with Jim Newton. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is supported by Sony Pictures Classics Interview, a new film starring Steve Buscemi and Sienna Miller about a journalist and starlet taking on media, truth, and celebrity. Directed by Steve Buscemi, now playing. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We continue with L.A. Police Chief Bill Bratton in conversation with Jim Newton. Let me ask you a little bit about the department's openness and accountability. These are areas that you talk about a lot. And yet today, the the city cannot learn the names of uh, officers who are involved in shootings, can't attend uh, disciplinary hearings of uh, officers who are charged with serious misconduct. Uh, I know there's a request pending with you and your department for a Board of Inquiry report on the shooting of that little girl a while back. All of that seems uh, to add up to a department that is somewhat less open uh, and accountable than it has been under previous chiefs. I wonder how you square your belief in accountability with uh, the reality on the ground in the police department today. Well, the issues you just raised, those are sort of uh, pet peeves of the L.A. Times. That That's reality, why I asked. The, the, <laughs> the reality was when our Board of Rights were open uh, and anybody could come in and sit in on them, that, that the Board of Rights are our trials, that the only people that were there, and they were there with great infrequency, was the occasional reporter from the L.A. Times. The public never came. and So this is an issue that... In some respects, it's a a red herring, the idea of having the names of the officer. I think more focus needs to be placed on the accountability that you talked about. And the accountability, there is no city in America whose police department is more accountable than the Los Angeles Police Department. Uh, We have a civilian commission that is appointed by the mayor that uh, is in control of the policy. They review all of the disciplinary actions of the department. That commission is currently headed up by John Mack, uh, the most prominent civil rights leader in this area of the country for the last 35 years. Certainly not somebody that's sympathetic to uh, hiding things in the LAPD. 
He's been banging on the door for 35 years to get in. Now that he's in, he's, he's my boss. I report to him. He's not about to hide anything. We have a former U.S. attorney, Andre Orden. We have a former assistant U.S. attorney. We have another attorney that works for the, the legal counsel for Galpin Motors, one of the largest Ford dealers in America. And we have Ms. Freeman, who is the woman that runs uh, Wells Fargo Bank for all of Southern California. So these are people who I report to. They're my bosses. They're your representatives. They also have an inspector general who basically has access to all of my investigations, all of my uh, records. We have the federal monitor. We have the 15 city council members. We have the mayor that I report to. We have the LA Times. So we are the most overseen police department in America. And uh, we are a department that, believe me, I've got some experience in this in terms of having run New York and Boston, consulted with many police departments around this country. There's no police department that investigates more thoroughly even the most minor use of force by our officers. If our officers take somebody down to make an arrest on them, they have to submit incredible paperwork that's reviewed. So accountability, I think we are, uh, and I can f say this without fear of contradiction by anybody, that we are the most accountable police department in America because of the systems that have been in place because of abuses of the past. The issue of openness that my police commission is very frustrated because under a uh, court interpretation, the Copley case, the LA Times and other newspapers uh, were involved in a suit to try and open up police disciplinary procedures even more than they were open here in this city and they lost. So the uh, issue is that the city attorney has advised my police commission they would be in violation of the law if they were to issue the names of police officers engaged in misconduct. Being quite frank with you, it's a crazy system. Back east, I could give the names out of offices. I didn't have a lot of the restrictions I operate under here. And it is frustrating, but it doesn't, from my perspective, preclude me, preclude my police commission from doing the right thing. Just because the names of the officers aren't out there, the LA Times has taken upon itself that it's the protector of the public interest. I'm sorry, I have a police commission I have the police chief who are fully embracing the idea that we are responsible to the public. And so I think that, uh, Jim, in all fairness, the times are changing and that when years, for years when the LA Times had a fight for accountability, you led the charge and it's here. That uh, it's a different police commission, different police chief, and a different police department. So that uh, there has to be some recognition of that, that the efforts that you had to undertake for 30 years when this place Police chiefs had life tenure, and as a result, were answerable to nobody. We had one police chief here didn't talk to the mayor for three years. I can't imagine that, that uh, in terms of how the hell that ever, ever function. But the issue that was raised, it's a long-winded answer to it, but I'm not opposed to opening up having the officers' names out there, but we're restricted by law and by a most recent court interpretation. But the point I'm making is just because we can't release the names doesn't mean that we in the police department, myself as chief, the police commission, the inspector general, are not, not doing the right thing. We are doing the right thing. The hubris of the times that it requires you to report on it, to make sure that it happens, that was probably the case for many years. I, I don't, personally, I don't believe that's the case today because we've reformed. Is there an alternative mechanism for reporting to the public that that they have these cases have been well handled? Uh, if, assuming that it's not going to be done through uh, this sort of historic way of officers' names being released mm -hmm. and the 
hearings being open. Is there some other way that you can demonstrate to the public, with or without the L.A. Times, uh, that, that that's the case? Actually, that's a great question because it is to our interest to have you have confidence in the system. And it's not just the idea of having names. The importance of the names to the L.A. Times and to others was that they could track, well, actually, they, they, they probably had a few years ago better personnel records than we had in terms of the ability to track incidents by officers' names. But the uh, idea being, I don't think it likely that the issue of officers' names is going to be resolved to the extent that their names are going to be made public. I think the Police Officer Bill of Rights, the clout of the unions up at the legislature, I don't see that changing. But with that, that's where it's all the more important to have confidence that the systems that have been put in place by the consent decree, by the department itself, by this police commission, and these are all extraordinarily honorable people, that they don't owe the L.A. Police Department anything in the sense of desire to hide anything or cover it up, that the consent decree the paragraphs, the reports that we have to make about discipline hearings. Again, there is no place in America, no police organization that has the complexity of layers of investigation and uh, validation that we have in the LAPD. And it's going to take, I think, a number of years to build up that trust through a succession of board members and police chiefs to gain trust that has been lost for, for good cause. Talk about Skid Row for a minute. Obviously, a lot of uh, discussion in the last couple of years about the state of Skid Row. I know from talking to you the other day that there are uh, some real results that you're seeing out there. Skid Row is uh, one of five Safer City initiatives. I made the point earlier that because of the shortage of personnel here, we can't do everything everywhere all at the same time. So we've picked five locations that would be some of the five of the worst problems in this city from a policing and a public perspective. Hollywood, which is the heart of this city, had tremendous gang problems. A Safer City initiative up there pretty much eliminated the gang problems, and now that billion and a half dollar investment is boomtown. You go up to Hollywood any day or evening, the place is wall-to-wall people. Crime has uh, diminished significantly up there. MacArthur Park, prior to the current event, was in 2002 when I visited. That was probably the crown jewel of the city's park system. It was overrun by gangs, narcotics dealers, people with fake licenses to sell. That park has been totally restored. It's a family park. You went to Langer's Deli, which is the best deli in the city, by the way. Best corned beef in the city from a New York perspective. (laughs) And you talk to uh, Mr. Langer and his father, they'll tell you it's never been better in the last 25 years than it's been the last couple of years as the police work with the community to take that park back. And Skid Row, Skid Row, which is a national disgrace and is a tremendous disgrace for the city. The idea that this city, its political leadership and the county, for years dumped tens of thousands of people down there out of sight, out of mind, and basically invested very little money in that problem and relied largely on the not-for-profits, the Midnight Mission, the Los Angeles Mission, a national disgrace. We have been working, working with George Kelling, who I work with in New York City, the author of Broken Windows. Over the last year, with 50 volunteer police officers in addition to the other officers that are down there, right now the crime down there is down by significant proportions. That uh, we've had one, I think we had, you know, I think we've had a homicide this year versus one last year. But more importantly, uh, the thousands of people who were allowed to live on the streets down there in their own filth and never moved. We now have a requirement that they, in daytime, they have to basically 
break down the tents and move that they can't block the sidewalks. And everybody was bemoaning that uh, that was being so unfair to them. But the number of deaths down there have been reduced by almost half. The number of drug overdose deaths have been reduced by almost half. The number of emergency ambulance runs to that area have been diminished significantly. The population living on the streets down there has been reduced from about 1,600 to about 700. Some have been displaced. Some have gone to jail. And others have gone into the treatment that's available. Skid Row is uh, a significant success story, and it will be even more significant in the months ahead. Those 50 volunteer offices, and all the offices that work downtown are all volunteers. These are people that are compassionate. They are trying to get these lives turned around. And it's been in the face of great opposition. Have there been some mistakes made? Yes, but there's a lot of allegations by an organization called L.A. Can. That's a, uh, an advocate group, and they have been alleging police brutality for four years. They have people running around with cameras all the time. And in that four years, they've not been able to come up with a single video image of any use of force down there. And yet they claim we're running amok, brutalizing the homeless. That is just not the case, not the case at all. We're saving lives down there. When they were left alone to their own devices, dozens of people were dying of exposure, drug overdose, and violence. And so we're saving countless lives down there and providing people the alternative to seek treatment, seek assistance. The role of the police in Skid Row is not to deal with the issue of uh, the condition of being homeless. The role of the police down there is to deal with the behavior. And if the behavior is illegal, just because you're homeless doesn't allow you to just smoke crack in the middle of the street. Just because you're homeless doesn't allow you to do things in the middle of the street that the rest of the population is not allowed to do. That the behavior is what the police focus on not the condition. And by focusing on the behavior, we ultimately improve the condition. Health conditions, crime conditions, societal conditions. And it worked in New York City. New York City, when I first went there in 1993, 94, or actually 1990 in the subway, we had 5,000 people living in the subways of New York City. My first year there, 132 homeless people died in the subways. Electrocution, run over by trains, freezing to death, overdosing. And within a very short period of time, that number was reduced to several dozen a year. And similarly, in the streets of New York, with over 100,000 people living in the streets of New York, that population has been reduced now to about 10,000 or 12,000, because there's a city that invests billions of dollars in its homeless problem. It builds housing, SROs, it provides alternative health care, a lot of the things that we don't do as a society here in Los Angeles. I wanted to ask you just one more uh, political question. Uh, you. You came here uh, under Mayor Hahn, and you outlasted uh, him, obviously. Uh, you've gone through some ups and downs with Mayor Villaraigosa. You rather famously went through some ups and downs with Mayor Giuliani. How much do the fortunes of the mayor with whom you serve affect the departments that you lead uh, and your ability to lead them effectively? Are you, how, to what degree are your fortunes hooked to those of the mayor? Oftentimes, it's like being in a three-legged race, and I'd, I'd correct you on that. I've had no ups and downs with Mayor Villaraigosa. Our relationship from day one has been a great relationship. He is... Uh, I'm sorry, I meant that he, he has gone through some ups and downs. Okay. Oh, no, but in terms of our relationship, <laughs> that, no, seriously, that uh, he is from day one, uh, you know, done nothing but sing my praises. He is my staunchest uh, advocate, even the reappointment issue. He has been steadfast through MacArthur Park about supporting the reappointment. Mayor Hahn's one of those individuals who years down the line will get the credit he's due. 
that he made some very difficult decisions that effectively saved the city. He fought the secession movement in the valley. He fought to uh, replace a chief of police who he felt was not going to be capable of responding to political leadership with crime going up for three straight years. And so I think that he's somebody farther down the line that will finally get the credit he's due. Mayor Villagosa, uh, I, for one, enjoy having a celebrity mayor, if you will. One, seriously. It, uh, celebrity based on some successes in the sense of crime going down, that he's somebody that attracts national media because as we basically do a better job of making Los Angeles safer, he's able to tell that story. He's got a big soapbox to stand on. And all credit to Mayor Hahn, but his, his quiet demeanor, he was not a very effective salesperson telling the story of the good things that were happening in the city. Villaraigosa, because he has a, a style that, like Giuliani in some respects in New York City, totally different personalities and styles, but both were outsized figures. Both were effectively people who could tell the story of their city, could attract national and international attention, and particularly to the good story. But when you had the bad story, could also deflect some of the, the negatives of that story. So one of the strengths of Mayor Villaraigosa is because he is a national, if not international, figure, that attracts, accrues positively to the city. Much the same as myself in terms of uh, my reputation in policing accrues positively. Uh, a bit of ego talking here, but the idea that my success and my recognizability nationally and internationally attracts much more positive attention and much more positive kudos when we do have success. And the most significant success you want in this city is public safety. Because if you don't have it, businesses aren't going to invest, tourists aren't going to come, jobs aren't going to be created, and the city's going to go downhill. And policing is an investment. Every one of those murders, and we had 50 fewer this year so far, that's a million dollars for each murder that it didn't cost the economy of this city. So just in the murder reduction alone, this police department has saved the city $50 million so far cost of hospitalization, economic impact. And with the crime reductions over the last several years, we've effectively, you've gotten equal return. I have a $1.1 billion budget. The crime reduction, the economic impact of that crime reduction is almost equivalent to my budget. So basically, I'm not costing you anything. <laughs> Seriously. Because if crime was going up, then basically it would be a phenomenal cost to the city. So public safety, it all begins and ends with public safety. And uh, just one man's perspective, but having worked at Boston, New York, and Los Angeles, all cities that have benefited from improved public safety. You're listening to Los Angeles Police Chief Bill Bratton in conversation with Jim Newton. In a moment, the audience gets its turn to ask the questions. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. On August 28th, check out our live events as Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series and the Music Center present the writer and MacArthur Genius Award recipient Alma Guillermo Prieto with How to Be a Mexican, a musical instructional manual at the Walt Disney Concert Hall. The Zocalo events are always free. Reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and download podcasts, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. When we return, Zocalo's audience interviews L.A.'s top cop. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Zocalo. 
89.3 KPCC reaches a large, active, intelligent audience. To learn how your organization or business can reach that audience, call 213-621-3592. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. In this final segment with Los Angeles Police Chief Bill Bratton, recorded before a live audience at Barnstallard Park, the Zocalo audience gets its turn to ask the questions. Hi, you mentioned many times the drop in crime rate, and I wanted to know if you're satisfied with one of the results of that drop in crime rate being the many more people serving long-term sentences in jail. And I also wanted to know, in your opinion, what is the effect of the privatization of prisons? I don't have an opinion on the privatization of prisons. I just don't know enough about it in terms of there's a few of them around the country, but uh, the fact there's only so few of them might speak for itself. In terms of the issue of longer jail sentences, uh, say three strikes, you're out. I'm not a a big proponent of three strikes, you're out, that... uh, in a sense, I'd prefer to actually leave it to judges and then just basically evaluate judges. But we do have it here. But a case in point that we intimately review police-involved shootings, which our officers are shot at. And this year we've had a almost 600% increase in officer-involved shootings. This is where officers are being shot at. And uh, we had one last night, two kids uh, fleeing police basically come out of the car with their guns drawn and Fortunately, no police officers injured, but the uh, two individuals were struck by our officers. The analysis we're doing of the shooters, a very small proportion of the people who intentionally and without provocation shoot at our officers, a very small percentage of three strikers. The common folklore would be that the, the, a person that's going to jail for the rest of his life is going to fight the police or attempt to you know, get away at all costs. That has not been our experience. So I think the, the, the three strikes and you're out is a mixed bag in some respects. You know, so it's not something that I'm supportive of. I'm certainly supportive of appropriate sentencing for appropriate crimes, but I'm not so sure that the mandatory sentencing is, is the way to go. District Attorney Cooley here in this county has a modified version of it where he really does try to take into account that somebody's not going to jail for the rest of their life for a a third crime that might not be of significance in the sense of a, a serious crime, bodily injury. You know, so he has a more rational use of the three-strike laws here in this uh, state. But prison does work for some people. In this state, unfortunately, we have something like an 80% recidivist rate that uh, within two years of them coming out, 80% of them go back. So there's, there's something wrong with that type of system where we just basically got a, uh, a revolving door and also on the issue of drugs that uh, an awful lot of people in jail for drugs that we might be better off spending that money on drug treatment because if you basically get them into the right type of drug programs many of these people will get off drugs and it'll be a hell of a lot less cost than incarcerating them again just one man's perspective on that issue you talked about reducing the gang violence and I was wondering specifically how you do it Reducing gang violence, one of the good news stories is that gang violence in this city is down dramatically from what it was in that year, 1990. Los Angeles had almost 1,100 murders that year. 
and again, the significant majority of those were gang-related. This year, we will have, at the current rate, we'll have about 420, so we'll have had about a 60 to 70 percent decline from that worst year. And the good news also, in a city that has about 39,000 documented gang members, the majority of them are not out there committing violent acts. If they were, none of us would be able to live here. But there is within that population a smaller group, a percentage, 3-4% of them are sociopaths that we focus a lot of our time and energy on trying to get the worst of the worst. We also try to go after the most prolific gangs that of the approximately 350 to 400 gangs in the city, a lot of them you never hear of. They're the you know, a smaller grouping that might be problematic to a neighborhood, but they're not engaging necessarily in violence versus some of the more active ones, 18th Street, MS, uh, some of the rolling 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s down the south side of the city. Our approach is partnership, working with FBI, DEA, ATF, Sheriff's Department, parole, probation, that rather than just the police department trying to do it by ourselves, we use force multipliers. We're all in it together, and we're having very good impact. For example, in our South Bureau, where a significant amount of our gang homicides occur, we have put together in our 77th area all of our gang homicide investigators from the whole South Bureau, and they work in the same room, open bullpen room, with three district attorneys from uh, Steve Cooley's office, several uh, city attorneys from Rocky Delgadillo's office with seven FBI agents who are assigned full-time to work gang homicides with us, with several DEA, drug narcotics representatives, several ATF agents to help us trace the guns, and working with probation and parole officers who come in and out of the room. There's no place in America that has that in one room, all of those resources working on the one issue of gang homicides. And the good news is that They've got homicides down dramatically in that area of the city. So can we eliminate gang violence? Not at all, but can we reduce it dramatically? We can reduce it much more than we've been able to do. It really comes down to a matter of resources. We know what to do, but once again, it's the matter of how much medicine do I have to apply. And I made a prediction a few years ago. If I had 3,000 cops, I could get crime down by another 50% in the city. Well, with about 200 more cops, we got it down by almost 30%. So with 3,000, I could probably get it down about 70 or 80% that, uh, and basically eliminate an awful lot of the gang violence in this city to such an extent that most of you would not uh, ever have any impact from it. Can I ask you one, Chief, and interject one question? One thing that you occasionally hear people suggest uh, for combating crime in the city is that the LAPD ought to do more to identify illegal immigrants. Special Order 40 uh, obviously puts some uh, restrictions on that. What is your feeling about whether the LAPD should be involved in, uh, in identifying and uh, assisting the deportation of people here illegally? It's a, uh, it would be a total waste of our resources in terms of enforcing the basic immigration law, the fact that somebody's here illegally. We do work uh, very closely as the sheriff and ICE on people who we have arrested, who we determine to be, here illegally, and particularly those that are here illegally who have been arrested previously and been deported and now back in the country illegally once again. So that Special Order 40, which you referenced back in the, I think just about a year or two into Darrell Gates' uh, time, in response to a number of suits, the police department initiated Special Order 40. 
And effectively, what it uh, instructs our officers to do is not to initiate a encounter with a person because you suspect that person is an illegal immigrant. And also, in terms of a person that is seeking to report a crime, it is of no importance to us what their immigrant status is. Because policing, effective policing, you, know, you have to know where crime is occurring. You have to have the cooperation of victims so that they can be witnesses for you to get people into court. So Special Order 40 is, is very misunderstood, the idea that it, it uh, precludes our officers from dealing with illegal immigrants who are committing crime. It doesn't, because if we catch them in the act, if we get warrants for them, we determine their immigrant status after they're arrested and when they're going through the booking process. But to have the too few, my 500 police officers, if they're out there inquiring uh, of people that they suspect are here illegally, every night by about an hour into the shift, they'll all be off the shift basically uh, arresting illegal immigrants. So it's just not an issue that local police can or should get engaged in. It also would end up in profiling because uh, basically, uh, how are you going to identify that illegal immigrant? Is it all brown people? Is it all Asian people? It just gets police going in uh, directions you don't want them going. And so we go after those that are here illegally who have been deported for serious crimes and are back again. It's like everything else I do, I have to prioritize. I can't deal with every problem, I have to prioritize. And the prioritization in the immigrant community is those who are preying on the immigrant community and particularly those who have been uh, arrested in the past and been deported and back here again. Chief, I think uh, that answers your question. I want, I to, uh, I want to thank you uh, for your time tonight. It is thank always you. a pleasure to see you and it's very generous of you to give all of us uh, your time. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to Los Angeles Police Chief Bill Bratton in conversation with Jim Newton. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. The producer for Zocalo Radio is Peter Stencil. Douglas Gary is our engineer. I'm Marco Stromer. Thanks for listening. A physicist has a new way to play old audio recordings. He can even get sound from records that are as badly damaged as this. If you look, there's a little piece. Uh, it looks like somebody just got hungry and took a bite out of it. I'm Linda Wertheimer, a camera.